You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. A great deal of information has come into the press, lay press, and medical literature regarding the extraesophageal manifestations of GERD. This is commonly referred to and discussed in symposia meetings and in medical discussions. Joining us to discuss extraesophageal GERD, fact or fiction, is Dr. John Nadomi, Dean M. Craig, Endowed Chair in Gastrointestinal Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. Welcome, John. Thanks so much, Jay. Glad to be here. What is GERD? And what constitutes extraesophageal manifestations of GERD? Well, there's a recent AGA summary that actually defined GERD for us, which is quite convenient. And it is a condition which develops when the reflux of stomach contents causes troublesome symptoms or complications. Now, this is a rather lengthy definition, but it basically reflects the fact that we want to define GERD based on patient symptoms and not specifically physiology. Well, that makes sense. So if that's the case for GERD, what is the extraesophageal manifestations of GERD? Or what is that disease state? Well, certainly the typical esophageal GERD symptoms are heartburn and acid regurgitation. But there's a variety of symptoms and possibly diseases that are caused by this particular process that affect the lungs, the teeth, the larynx, and a variety of other things. And, and that's what encompasses extraesophageal GERD. Do you have to have GERD, heartburn, before you can develop extraesophageal manifestations? Do they run hand in hand? What is the actual link between these? Well, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up, Jay. We're sure that these things are associated mainly based on epidemiological evidence showing that, let's say, people with reflux actually do have more of these symptoms. And also, people who have these extraesophageal symptoms actually do have more reflux disease. So there clearly is an association, but the tightness of this association isn't as great as we once thought. Well, what are some of the symptoms that patients would actually come in with if they were manifesting extraesophageal manifestations? Well, there's a variety. I'll give you a list of them. One is chest pain, which can really mimic cardiac disease. There's a variety of lung symptoms, such as chronic cough or asthma or any kind of reactive airway disease. There's laryngeal types of symptoms, either sore throat or hoarseness, and even dental caries. I have a fair number of referrals myself from our ENT colleagues. Many times they send me patients with hoarseness or chronic cough or one of these other type symptoms. In the absence of typical heartburn, should I really be scoping them, looking at them, evaluating them, treating them empirically? Are they likely really to have extraesophageal manifestations of GERD? Well, this is a, a great topic, Jay, and in fact, we do have this recent AGA guideline upon which we can draw some of the evidence. In terms of your specific question, if a patient actually lacks symptoms of either heartburn or acid regurgitation, it's actually very unlikely that this extraesophageal symptoms can be attributed to GERD, with the one exception of chest pain. So it's unlikely that they're going to do it and have, have these symptoms. Many times they've been placed on proton pump inhibitors and have failed. Does that support your position? There's a lot of evidence and a lot of studies trying to look at therapies for GERD and whether or not these can actually reduce symptoms of extraesophageal GERD. And the one symptom state that is actually pretty well established as being responsive to GERD therapy is the 
non-cardiac chest pain. We call it now the reflux chest pain syndrome. And in that entity, certainly it appears that use of double-dose PPIs can alleviate the symptoms of chest pain in several randomized trials. The problem is, is that in other symptoms we talked about, there are very little in the way of good studies or studies that will illustrate any kind of benefit with acid reduction therapy unless those patients have concomitant, concomitant esophageal reflux symptoms such as heartburn or regurgitation. Well, let's go to that entity of chest pain that you're describing. They come into your office and they're basically complaining of this chest pain. Do you evaluate them? Do you, you know, assuming that it's non-exertional chest pain and low risk for cardiac events, do you go ahead and put them straight on double-dose PPIs and empiric therapy, or what do you do? Well, the short answer is yes, Jay. I think that the one thing we do have to keep in mind, and, and you've alluded to this, is that this can be indistinguishable from cardiac chest pain. So the first thing to really do is to ensure that whoever has referred them to you has adequately ruled out atherosclerotic disease and that the symptoms are not actually cardiac in origin. Once that happens, I agree with you that the first therapy or the first step in management is an empiric trial of double-dose proton pump inhibitors, mainly because of the fact that the various studies have shown in this particular patient group that a substantial number of these people can have alleviation of their symptoms. And this is before other diagnostic tests are embarked upon. Double-dose being your first choice, you don't go to single-dose. Well, the main reason is because of the fact that we're using this as a trial. It's almost a diagnostic test. And there actually are several studies using a PPI test, as, as it's actually called, as a way of diagnosing whether or not chest pain is, in fact, of a GERD etiology. And the reason why we use double dose is because if we use single dose, they didn't respond, perhaps we would need to go up to a double dose. And that's the reason why we kind of start them off with the highest reasonable dose possible. And then, of course, if you once your symptoms are controlled, then we can try to back down if they're able to. What should our uh, listeners be telling their patients if they start them on double dose? How soon should they expect the response? And what kind of trial length do you give these patients? Well, the, the usual recommendation is for two months. Uh, and the reason for this is because unlike typical reflux symptoms, such as heartburn, it often takes a prolonged period of time for these extraesophageal symptoms to respond to acid reduction therapy. For that reason, it's a prolonged empiric trial, again, two months. Once the end of the two months comes up, you know, there's fewer data to show, to truly guide what we do. But most people will say that if the symptoms are relieved on double-dose PPI, then we could try stepping down and then use the minimal dose necessary to achieve our therapeutic goal, which in this case is symptom control. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me to discuss extraesophageal manifestations of GERD, fact or fiction, is John Enadomi, Dean M. Craig Endowed Chair in Gastrointestinal Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. Well, John, let's turn our attention to more traditional ENT findings because we as gastroenterologists often interact with these individuals. Many times they will send me patients or send our colleagues patients after they've failed a sometimes double-dose or single-dose trial of PPIs for non-chest pain-type symptoms such as hoarseness or cough. What should we be doing with these patients? Generally, they've already looked down their throat and have seen some quote-unquote redness in the laryngeal area. What do we do with those patients? 
The practical matter, Jay, is that we see these people all the time, but we also have to realize that in addition to reflux, there's a variety of other etiologies for this kind of redness, the vocal cords, including things like post-nasal drip, overuse of the voice. There's also neuropathies that occur, and we're being more and more revealed in the literature. I think overall, though, that most of the data and the experts, including the guidelines, will agree that in the absence of concomitant heartburn or acid regurgitation, it is very unlikely that empiric therapy with PPIs will alleviate the, the symptoms associated with laryngitis or symptoms of laryngitis. And generally, the, the guidelines would not recommend undergoing any type of empiric therapy for these individuals. Well, these are the patients who have tried empiric therapy. Do you go ahead if they failed? If you think that this is in the realm of possibility, do you do endoscopy on these patients? Do you do pH studies on these patients, 24-hour pH studies? Do you do motility studies looking for other causes? Do you pursue it or do you really stick to your guns? Again, this is an excellent question, mainly because there's a guideline that's out that actually does kind of support a tact where we would sit back and just do base our management on empirical data. But from a practical matter, I have to say that I would actually perform the ambulatory esophageal pH monitoring. And the reason for that is because it's a much more sensitive test than endoscopy for detecting reflux disease. Keep in mind that it's not a perfect test, but certainly if there's evidence of abnormal esophageal acid exposure, then I think therapy is indicated in that case. I'm kind of glad you said that because that's what I would do too. The question I have for you now is do you do it on the PPI or off the PPI? This is a, another great question. If you ask experts from actually around the world, you'll get a mixed response. And there's a variety of rationales. Certainly, if you do it off PPI, what you're looking for is whether or not the patient does, in fact, have baseline abnormal acid exposure, given them a diagnosis of GERD. If you do it while on PPI, what you're really doing is trying to figure out whether the residual symptoms, despite PPI, are actually due to excess of acid. The general recommendation at this point, however, is to perform the ambulatory pH test off of PPI. And again, that's just to ensure that what you're dealing with is a patient who does have a baseline abnormal acid exposure, or at least, the, again, the physiology set up for gastroesophageal reflux disease. When you go to talk to your ENT colleagues, and they really are pushing this issue, what do you tell them about what the redness means that they see? Why don't we expand on that? I think we have to go back and say that there's a variety of causes of this redness. And reflux is certainly can be one of them, but it's not the only one. And I think that we have to, at some point, realize that after empiric PPI trials and after ambulatory esophageal pH measurements, there's very little to be gained by doing more testing. And I specifically mean upper endoscopy or, let's say, even motility studies. And again, that's in the absence of a traditional esophageal reflux symptom, such as heartburn or acid regurgitation. Now, certainly there could be an element of benefit from reassurance, but from most of the clinical trials that have been published, there really isn't much of a rationale for pursuing additional diagnostic testing beyond that. What else do you tell your patients beyond a trial of PPIs and appropriate use? What guidelines do you tell your patients or your referring physicians that may help them better treat patients with reflux and reflux-like symptoms? Well, you know, I think, that again, that we're faced with a lot of problems with the fact that GERD doesn't have a perfect diagnostic test. It's really difficult to define a gold standard for GERD. 
Having said that, most of this is symptom-driven. So uh, I think we can be pretty well assured that as long as we control symptoms, that we're doing the right thing to our patient. You know, this is not a talk about Barrett's esophagus and esophageal adjunct carcinoma. We could spend another hour on that. But barring that issue, again, I think that symptom relief is, is the main goal of therapy. So besides that, I talk to my PCPs and my patients that, you know, once we have patients relieved on symptoms, to try to step down to the lowest dose that's effective for managing their symptoms. And also that if the symptoms continue, once the empiric trial fails and perhaps after doing esophageal ambulatory measurements, if those are all normal, then reassurance and try to look for other etiologies of these symptoms because it's very unlikely that these will be reflux in origin. What, do you, in your opinion, is the most common cause of PPI failure in acid-related disorders? The issue with PPI is that they're very good drugs, and especially a double-dose PPI. Once you're on double-dose PPI, it's very unlikely that residual symptoms are due to acid reflux. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of California in San Francisco, Dr. John Inadomi. Dr. Inadomi, thank you very much for being our guest on this week's GI Insights. Thanks a lot, Jay. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.